0: Hey, this is Danny. Before we started the episode, I just wanted to say there are a few instances in this episode where you can hear... Dog barking in the background, I'm a dog uncle. Laura's a dog aunt, and we were with Scotty, a sixteen year old Jack Russell Terrier mix, super old, super cantankerous. Um, he's a real piece of sh- uh, work, <laughs> but we love him uh, i I've known him for four years. I feel like he's my dog. He gets a little lonely when we're not giving him attention, so he was barking. You'll hear that in the background a few times, but yeah. Not a big deal. It happens. Now, on to the episode. Happy Holidays. Last Christmas, I challenged you so. Strike a blow against me. I'll return it in kind, one year hence, go to my homestead, prepare to be beheaded.
1: I had to mute my mic, I was laughing. (laughs) Gosh, that took me
0: two hours to write. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to Film Is Lit the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. Full spoilers for both the book and the movie. In this case, the epic poem and Mm. the movie. My name is Danny. I am the film expert.
2: My name is Laura, and I'm the literature co-expert this time.
0: Ooh, (laughs) impressive. And... The source material and movie in question today is the chivalric romance, *The Green Knight*.
2: I'm glad you updated it to chivalric romance because technically it is not an epic poem.
0: Right. Yeah. Excuse me. Now, <laughs> um, uh, what is it though?
2: It's a chivalric romance.
0: Yeah. So, is it a poem or? It's it also? is a
2: poem, but it's not an epic.
0: Gotcha. Just
2: yeah, different genre it's
0: like a sh- I guess a short. Well, it's long for poem standards but short for story standards.
2: But you're right, but the themes of epic poems are different than the themes in chivalric romance.
0: Gotcha. I'm still was. still learning about this stuff. <laughs> uh, and today, it's a special episode because we have a returning guest. Now, this is the fourth time we're talking with him. This is the second time on our podcast, but he also joined us twice on another podcast, Dylan Davis's The Super 70 podcast. He joined us to talk about Akira, do a commentary on Akira, as well as a deep dive conversation into Akira and Dune and Ghost in the Shell, a few other...
2: Everything but the kitchen sink. Yeah, right. That, was,
0: that was a, a three-hour <laughs> opus of an episode. But we thank Dylan for having us on, not once, but twice. So yeah, if you're listening to this podcast, please check out the Super 70 podcast. Dylan is a great fan of the pod, personal friend of ours now. So yeah, but returning for a second episode on Film is Lit is Ryan Burns. Ryan, say hello.
1: Hello, everyone. It's uh, it's wonderful to be back and be a part of the Film is Lit. Uh, thank you guys for having me. And I'm very much looking forward to discussing the Green Knight and really how different the uh, the movie was from from the poem because i think it's it's pretty fascinating
0: yeah oh we can't wait to get into this what a juicy piece of meat this story is <laughs> i can't wait to dive into it and yeah i always forget since you're best friends with my brother i always assume that you studied architecture with him at uva but i forget that you have a degree in english right correct
1: i do yes
0: Right, and you guys met through the the lacrosse team, right
1: we, we did, we did, yeah, Timmy was always the one building things, and I was the one reading books of all sorts, yeah. <laughs> not right. that he not that he doesn't read, but
2: <laughs> the illiterate he idiot. he does no
0: <laughs> right, so we have Sorry, not
2: Tim, you're not an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I've been drinking, so I'm a little edgier today than normal, yeah,
0: she's on her <laughs> second big glass of beer uh, fitting for. It's like we're in a tavern. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like Godwin's
1: character in the beginning of the movie a virtual round table.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah so we have not one but two english experts on the pod laura and ryan and i am a film expert which means i'm an expert in nothing all right um
2: <laughs> no right i actually have a follow-up question ryan did you focus on something in your english degree or
1: we what did you study required to necessarily focus um we had big core classes that covered different eras of literature i would say that if you were to officially make me declare a focus, it was modern American literature that I read the most of. But we did have a section on medieval literature, and this was a big focal point way back when. I mean, that was over 12 years ago when I was uh, studying that part in college. So yeah, I have experience with this um, way back when, but it was really, really fun to revisit it. I scoured my belongings for my notes and I thought that I might have had a notebook but I couldn't find it but yeah this was this was a fun one to get into again so
2: yeah no I was the same way I didn't have a focus but I enjoyed watch or reading this for the first time when I was in college with another one of our guests Dr. Flory Mm -hmm. and I used those notes to prepare for this podcast too so
1: (laughs) more prepared than I
2: no 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 i just read through my old notes (laughs) anyway
0: yeah i thought i had experience with king arthur uh camelot stories i'd consider myself a fan of that genre but i was proven to be a faker when (laughs) this movie came out and i'm like oh wait i've never i've never read or even heard of the green knight so i guess (laughs) i guess i'm not a biggest fan of this this material as I thought. So I luckily went in completely blind to the movie. And whether you read the story or not, I think there's enough in here to blow your minds, no matter your expectations of the film. So let's get into it. So Ryan, you talked a little bit about your experience with the short story. So when did you first see the movie?
1: I actually saw it uh, for the first time today, um, so it's very fresh, and I I tried to do that on purpose um, so that I could speak to it instead of having you know a few days go by since I saw it. But I watched it for the first time today. A beautifully done film. Dev Patel is one of my favorite actors, and yeah. he absolutely handled the role in expert fashion. I think he was a great choice for Sir Gawain. And now there's, there's many different pronunciations of the name in the movie, interestingly enough, but I've always either, when I studied it in college, it was Gowan. My professor Mm -hmm. was pronouncing it that way. I looked it up today and it was Gawain on Google. I'll probably alternate back and forth between the two, but uh, I like to think my professor is a little bit more knowledgeable than Google is. But um, (laughs) yeah, so the movie was, was, was fantastic. I found myself really loving it up until probably the third act when things really started to venture from the traditional plot line and mm-hmm. I was wondering how is it Lowry the 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 director was going yep. to kind of pull it all back together and he did it pretty wonderfully so I mean, the last five minutes of the film really pulled me back into loving it. And because I was kind of, you know, like, oh, this 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 isn't what happened, <laughs> you know, in the story. <laughs> yeah. But then he he kind of, you know, he wrapped it up in a great way. And I I thought that it was it was uh, staying true to the poem. So, you know, watched it today. Loved it. Can't wait to get into the, the nitty gritty on it. What you all think?
2: I completely agree. The funny thing is that the first time I watched this was on a plane because Danny found out that A24, which is the production company behind the film, was dropping it for free on their website like a day before it was released or day of. So we had access to it, but it was the day that we were flying home from Massachusetts from our summer trip. (laughs) So he worked, I don't know, a couple hours to figure out exactly how to make sure that we had access to the internet while we were flying home.
0: Yeah. You had to buy (laughs) internet on the United flight.
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we were between airports and between the East and West coasts. And we didn't quite finish it because we had a little bit of internet trouble on the plane. So we landed and I was like, we had to wait all the way. We like drove home from LAX. And then I open the laptop again and finished it at home because I didn't want to wait because I was so, it's such a mood movie. Like it's, it's just, it's like impossible to kind of not like fall into this like rabbit's hole yeah. of experience. Like it's, it's just so like haunting and just really, cause I hadn't read the poem since college and I remembered bits and pieces, but not a lot of it, but I just remembered this like foreboding feeling while reading it because obviously there's that that timeline like really pressing timeline one year hence and i just remember linking that feeling to how i was feeling while watching the movie and i just like i couldn't look away from the screen and then i think you're right there's a lot of change and i think a lot of the technical features of a chivalric romance were taken out but i think it works in terms of like a lot of you know conventional audiences contemporary audiences now just aren't familiar with it and again like I wasn't I completely forgot about things like the pentangle and like a lot of the technical stuff that's in the poem and I don't think that I lost anything without those things in the in the movie I think I just the feeling that I had was the exact same as when I was reading the poem and I think that's like that's the real success of the movie for me yeah what about you
0: yeah so I was pumped for it back when the trailer came out, right before the pandemic. And I was a passing fan of David Lowry. I saw his film, A Ghost Story, on opening night, actually, and liked it. I thought it was a bit pretentious, but still beautifully made. I love his film, Eight Them Body Saints, with Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck. I haven't seen Pete's Dragon, but apparently that's a great live-action remake of, of a Disney movie. Uh, One of the few great live-action remakes out there. But yeah, he's normally an indie filmmaker from Texas. And he makes these really low-budget movies that net a higher box office than his budget. So he technically makes hits for A24. (laughs) And yeah, the trailer came out, looked stunning. Just beautiful. It has that speech that King Arthur and the Queen give to gawain at the beginning saying that gawain says that he has no stories to tell and then the queen says yet no stories to tell yet it's just a great way to set the scene and then the trailer ends with the green knight lifting up his head saying one year hence so i'm like (laughs) i'm in of course as we all know the pandemic happened and is Still happening, by the way. Yeah, not <laughs> um, <Get> so. <laughs> it was the movie was delayed an entire year. It was supposed to come out in July of 2020, and ended up coming out in August of 2021. By that point, I was fully vaccinated, so I went to go see it with my former roommate Kyle, who is, has been on the pod. He was on our Doctor Sleep episode. It was my first. Theater going experience since before the pandemic, so yeah, eighteen months basically had gone one by. Year hence. Yeah, one year <laughs> hence and a half. Uh, and yeah, I thought I'm not normally that guy who's like, you have to see this in a theater because my theater going experiences are definitely numbered. I hate when people talk. I-, I can't focus on a movie even if someone's rustling around with popcorn or anything like that. But also health concerns too. Some some people aren't comfortable going back, and I, I totally get that. It, it makes perfect sense. But seeing this in a theater, I was fully hypnotized to the point where I couldn't even fully comprehend what I had just seen. I knew I loved it, but I also knew that I would have to see it again immediately to retain some of the information, and ended up doing that with Laura on the plane (laughs) which was which is funny and then saw it again to prepare for this podcast and each time I just gain so much more appreciation but also knowledge of the themes that David Lowry is discussing, the themes that the original author or authors of the text were trying to give across because it is technically anonymous, written by Anonymous.
2: The Gawain poet.
0: Right. Yeah. So I saw the movie first and then I read a translation by W.A. Nielsen, a professor from Oxford. It seemed like it was pretty dumbed down, but even then I had a tough time grasping
2: Was it in verse or yeah. was it in Okay.
0: Yeah. It did have footnotes kind of like, you know, in high school when you're reading Shakespeare and mm. it would tell you what the hell they're talking about <laughs> in the footnotes. So, yeah, I went through that phase struggled a little bit to get through the story just because i'd already know i already knew or thought i knew the story of course this story is much different than the movie but they have similar themes so yeah i think this film it's absolute catnip for hipster cinephiles (sighs) like myself i mean this is a type of film that will be lauded by critics and cinephiles that mass audiences will have hated and will hate. (laughs) I I was watching the movie and I'm like, wow, David Lowry really did this. Like he could have, he could have thrown in your classic night battles, swords and sandals action. Uh, there's none of that in here. This, this is not an action film. I wouldn't even say it's an adventure in the sense that he takes a trip from one place to the other, but it is much more of a mood piece an exploration of shame and uh, integrity and what it means to be honorable and how you can't cheat life. And also like what green represents of death and rebirth, very heavy themes. The movie is two hours and eight minutes, feels longer in the best way possible. And that it just, washes over you and you get absorbed into this black hole of <laughs> of epicness and deep deep messages. So I totally understand why on Rotten Tomatoes this has like a 90% critic score but the audience score is like 48. I'm like, that makes mm. that makes perfect sense. How some people... Bummer. Can you imagine your grandma going to see mm-hmm. this movie or, or even my dad like sitting <laughs> down? <laughs> He'd be asleep within minute 10. So yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that's not to say that these people don't have taste. It's just a different frequency. So mm-hmm. yeah, well, let's get into the analysis. So a quick synopsis of the story is that it takes place in camelot with king arthur and his knights and one christmas celebration an otherworldly green knight barges in and challenges the men to a challenge whoever can strike a blow against me i'll return that blow in kind in a year none of the knights step forward because they're all shocked but gawain or in the film, Sean Harris, who plays King Arthur, he straight up says Garwin, like with an R. He says Garwin. Uh, So Gawain Garwin, nephew of King Arthur, steps up to the challenge, ends up beheading the Green Knight, but the Green Knight, not being of human existence, an otherworldly creature, picks up his head and says, one year hence, I'll see you in a year, dude. (laughs) Uh, And then the journey continues from there in a year, Gawain travels to the Green Chapel to face the Green Knight. Ryan, we had talked a little off mic of the stark differences between the short story and the movie, but what are some right off the bat that you wanted to address?
1: So right off the bat, uh first and foremost I just want to say one of my favorite parts of the film is a very slight, very short up close shot of Sean Harris after Dev Patel's character of Gawain beheads the Green Knight which is right after Sean Harris says remember it's just a game yeah and the look of I don't know if it's disappointment but he he kind of winces when he beheads the Green Knight and I think he I think that's a showing of his understanding of what the challenge is and gawain's misunderstanding of the challenge yeah which i thought was very very interesting and it was very perfectly placed something that just stood out to me right away but from the beginning when we're introduced to patel's gawain the biggest difference was he's not a knight in the film whereas he exists currently as a knight in the poem um he's one of the in the poem he's one of Arthur's top nights, if not his top night, in terms of how he lives his life, his morals and his standards and his virtue. We're introduced with Patel's Gawain as pretty much a playboy. He's awoken by Oof. you know, a splash of water, and we are shown that he's been in a brothel all night. And he makes a joke saying, I think his mother, who's Morgan Le Fay, asks, where have you been? And he's like, I was at mass all night. And she's like, oh yeah, really like at mass. <laughs> um, so we're, we're, we're presented with a a wildly different character, you know, from a moral and standard perspective, um, which I think is basically setting the tone for this being kind of a coming of age or a, um, you know, journey for honor or growing up uh, really in, in the film, as opposed to what the journey that gawain takes in the poem what that represents uh, there, there's there's definitely crossover and themes between the two um but the setting with gawain in the film is is of a different tone uh with with how the character is structured um at this point so in the beginning we're presented with pretty much a totally different character with the same name but uh you know he'll he'll prove that he holds very closely later on in the film to the the Gawain of the poem. So just right off the bat, those are my takes.
2: Yeah, I'm wondering if that's the first little concession to the audience. I think it's a little bit easier for people who aren't familiar with the knightly structure and the way that they had to continuously prove that they were worthy of the title rather than if we start with Gawain lower than a knight then we see it's it's a little bit easier to make the connection how he has to earn the title i don't know that could could just be like a little bit of a eat like a quicker um yeah plot line
0: right and it's also in my opinion a little bit more of a compelling mm-hmm. arc too because in the short poem he is a knight that goes on a journey and is just crushing it <laughs> until the end and the lesson is that he learns from his shame, but he'll always have to wear his shame shame in the form of that scar. Like that scar represents his sin. Whereas the movie is a complete inverse. Gawain is not a knight. He goes through the whole movie failing and his final test he completes. So it's about a man learning that he'd rather have his honor and integrity than live a life of shame. So it's it's... Complete opposite, but I think just from an opinion-based point, much more compelling. And throughout the whole film, every character he comes in contact with makes a comment about whether like, you don't look like a knight or like with the lady. You're no and, knight. Um, yeah, you are no knight mm-hmm. after that uh, pretty intense, uh, Shocking saucy singing. scene. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah, when the reveal of the bodily fluid is on screen... My audience like erupted. They they didn't even know how to react, and I I remember I went like I don't I don't know what that was, I don't know why I did that, but it was just so you just don't see stuff like that, and and it's not pornographic at all. It, it's very much in theme with the film, but yeah the the scavengers mistaken for a knight, and Gawain keeps on saying like I'm not a knight, I'm not a knight referencing his own shame because he knows he's not at that point in his journey that he's not up to the level of honor, integrity to call himself that. And it's only until the end when he takes off that girdle, when the green knight calls him, you know, says a brave knight. And we'll, we'll talk about the ambiguous ending later on, but.
2: Well, I think this is a good place to talk about, especially how the original epic or excuse me, poem is kind of considered a satire on a lot of chivalric romances because the Gawain poet is questioning whether all of the knightly chivalric traits are in fact possible to completely embody perfectly. And in the end, the question, or I guess the point is that he doesn't believe that it's possible to uphold all of these knightly traits in one person and to be perfect at every single decision and i just don't know if that's something that people are as again that's not as accessible yeah as a satire i think it is a lot more like available to people to understand like this is a journey of someone who's coming from a place where he needs to prove himself and he understands that like it's not about proving himself to other people it's about his integrity in the end so it's like it's like a different way of coming about that understanding that i think the movie did really really well just understanding that people aren't as familiar with those kind of romances anymore because you know these are hundreds of years old
0: (laughs) yeah and you had mentioned those virtues so the five traditional knightly virtues were friendship generosity chastity courtesy. And piety. So in the film, up until the very last challenge, like I said, Gawain fails at all of those. So generosity is the first test with the scavenger. The scavenger has to beg him to pay him for the very valuable information he wasn't going to pay him to begin with. And even when he does pay him, tweren't enough, as to <laughs> quote Barry Keegan, the frightening Barry Keegan. I mean, he has... Six minutes of screen time in this movie. So haunting, such a big presence. So fails in generosity, um, chastity, obviously with the lady, the you no night scene, courtesy with Winifred, who's the lady in the cabin, who the ghost lady uh, who has her head decapitated. So, so she's not in the original right. poem, but she is based on other stories and material of this time, 14th century material. So he, he fails that challenge by asking her, what will I get in return if I get your head for you? And so that's a big fail there. I think
1: she's like, why would you ask me that? Like, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. She's
1: pretty right. ticked off. At me.
2: My head is on the floor. Yeah. Like, can you yeah. just go
1: get my head please?
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Friendship. He fails in that. It could be seen Brotherly two ways.
2: love. Technically. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, fails two ways with that when he flees the lord's castle they were they were being a little weird but uh, he he flees and doesn't really become a friend of his but also he doesn't heed the advice of the fox who's telling him not to venture in the green chapel who in the short story is a man
2: i love what, that change much, i don't know if you liked that right yeah, on, much but i thought cuter. that was really cool i thought
1: it was pretty neat and i i thought that So, from what I was reading and researching, uh, Lowry's reasoning for the fox, kind of accompanying him along his journey, was a stand-in for one of the hunts that the Lord goes on. Mm -hmm. And he mentions, you know, I was trying to catch this fox. It eluded me several days in a row. And then they actually do a nice homage to it with the mural of the fox with the man's head at several points throughout the film referencing oh, I that, didn't even
2: notice that
1: but also especially when he's he's on his bed with whatever I, The crazy one of the hardest things about this film and it's not a critique but I think it it lends itself to be rather inaccessible to a general audience because the basically have four characters that are named everybody mm-hmm. else is you are just kind of expected to deduce who they are and who they might be um, the princess I have no idea who that was supposed to be Um, that he ends up leaving Essel for and marrying and having a child with he's, he's laying on his back and he's looking up at the ceiling and there's the Fox with the man's head, but also Mm -hmm. they pay tribute to that section of the poem when the Lord, um, Joel Edgerton, Edgerton's character, side note, I adore Joel Edgerton. I think he's (laughs) an absolute badass actor and I love everything that he touches, um, and uh you know he he lets the fox out of the bag that is Mm. part of what happens you know at the end of one of the hunts and his conversations with with gawain um or gowan but yeah i i loved it
2: no to further your point about the characters being confusing the same actors sometimes play different characters alicia throughout the movie and i was a little bit confused at a couple points because I didn't recognize her at first and then I was started looking a little closer I was like oh wait a second like and then I started kind of thinking like what does that mean and I think it's what it's trying to express is how metaphorical this whole thing is because I think you can really read it as like a journey of the mind it's like an emotional journey and as much as it's fun to watch. I think that's what makes it so dense is it is an emotional journey. It's not, it's completely symbolic. Like there's nothing real about it. And that idea finds its roots in chivalric romances too, because like we were talking about earlier, epic poetry is a lot more realistic as much as you can like consider it realistic, consider Homer realistic, which like is weird to think about, but you know, it's like, Based in like monsters and like overcoming physical obstacles and stuff like that. And whereas chivalric romances are very much like a journey within. And so I think it just, even if it doesn't mean something specific, I think the recurrence of people's faces is sometimes like just an interesting way of saying like themes can recur in your life sometimes. And like if you struggle with something one time and you don't completely deal with it in a mature way or you know, figure it out in your life, then it might come up again. And you might have to like struggle to overcome it again.
0: Right? Yeah. And speaking of symbolic, you can't get more symbolic and literal at the same time with Gawain approaching the giants and literally asking to sit on the shoulders of giants (laughs) as a way to cheat the journey. You never know if the giants are going to kill Gawain or pick him up to put him on the shoulders. But the the fox luckily steps in to either to either push them away or
1: to keep them going on their journey. So I have a question. Laura, you mentioned you know duality almost with characters being represented twice or same characters playing different roles absolutely and Joel Edgerton's character, the Lord, it is revealed in the poem that he is the Green Knight. And I have a, I was wondering if you guys noticed this. I don't know if it was my mind playing tricks on me because I did know that. But there's that one prolonged shot, like maybe 15 minutes before the movie ends when he's in the Green Chapel. And it shows that shot of the Green Knight's face and it just freezes on it for like two minutes. And it kind of cuts back and forth between, you know, their, their, their faces. But I could have sworn that, it was ever so slightly showing a different character's face reminiscent. Of, and I kept thinking, is this going is to, is his face going to shift into Joel Edgerton's face? And there's going right. to be that reveal that's in the poem, but I was wondering if it was maybe being alluded to, or if I was just making it up completely. And I didn't take any CBD or gummies last night. So <laughs> like I, I I made sure my system was clean. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that I had any any you know active things in my system cause that would have caused such a reaction. But I was wondering if you guys noticed anything like that. I, I could have sworn that there was some ever so slight changes in the face of the night at that moment. But I don't I, I don't know. I mean, I, I could be just completely making it up.
2: You're making me want to go back because I honestly didn't notice that. But I'm super. I I would say if you're noticing it then they probably meant to do that because I don't, I think like that's a key reveal in the poem. I don't think that that's something that they would have skipped over if they were aware of it. That's really cool. Did you notice that?
0: Yeah. I think the makeup is slightly different in that. See, I do agree with you because you're right. It's about two minutes where you're just looking at his face And you think the shot's going to cut, but it just doesn't. It keeps on going. I think what it comes down to is Ralph Anisen, who plays the Green Knight, Mm -hmm. visually his face looks similar to Joel Edgerton. I think that's a nod to the poem, but after seeing it three times, my interpretation is that he's completely separate from the Lord. He is this own uh, forest god, tree god. Uh, if you will, attached to nature, uh, created by his mother, Morgan LeFay. That's a fun fact there that originally his mom, that character, wasn't in the film as much as she is in the final cut. David Lowry went back and shot more scenes because he realized how much it was working and how much the actress contributed to the story. So. Yeah, there's more Morgan Lefay in the film than originally intended. But yeah, it is creepy in that scene when the shot in his face at night because you have the soft glow of moonlight reflecting off of the stream and the, the light very subtly moves across his forehead and eyes. So I can see how there's the illusion of, of movement. Um, it was a trippy end. part of
1: the film, for sure. Yeah. And that that just, I thought, was a really cool effect that they were going for but that that stood out to me as something potentially you know important
0: yeah that brings up another big change as you're saying uh so it's not revealed in the film that the lord is the green knight
1: it's not directly and correct me if i'm wrong even hinted to that lord i think it's a bertalak is really his his
2: to house a dessert. That's right. Desert. That's right. <laughs> hot hot dessert. Yeah. Perdalac de ho- hot dessert. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um it's not directly stated that the two are connected. Um which I think is one of my very few grievances with with the film. I think up until the series with Lady and Lord that whole sequence was the part where I was like this is such a departure and I, I understand why it's being done this way, but I thought it was doing a disservice to Gawain's character from the poem to portray Gawain in the film that way, as well as have him react to these different challenges or circumstances the way that they chose to. And it, what I was hinting at when I, you know, opened up at the beginning of the podcast was that's where they lost me. That's, that's, mm. and, and it, it not really lost me, but that was where I was, I was, I was a little disagreeable with the direction but the way that he wrapped it up at the very end made that all make sense so without Mm -hmm. that ending i think he could have risked blowing the film up if he didn't kind of wrap it all up the way that he he did i mean he did it so expertly that it it alleviated any concern with you know his artistic uh liberty uh with interpretation Mm -hmm. of the of the of the story so
2: What do you think the movie robbed from that scene that you got out of the poem?
1: I think that we are already introduced with the film's version of Gawain as a character that's rather slave to his desires, and we don't need that portrayed in such, you know, vivid, explicit detail (laughs) as with the interaction with, you know, the lady. Also in the poem, she advances him three separate occasions. And he,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, in the poem, executes chastity, save for, you know, kissing, one, you know, a one kiss, two kiss, and then the third night, three kisses, in which he ends up, you know, having to give to the Lord in exchange for the game, the game being the, the hunt, the, the, you know, the kill that he brought back every day. And, you know, highlighting the, the structure of their own, you know, kind of sub game within the plot. I think it, it did a disservice to Gawain's character to have him re-represented as, you know, so disagreeably uh, from my perspective. It wasn't really fair. Gotcha. It, it just, because that was one of the things that I loved about that character was from the poem. I remember specifically like thinking, you know, he's staying in, in this castle or establishment and they're welcoming him in and she's advancing on him and he's like this isn't right you know this isn't the right thing to do i'm a knight and so to just flip that on its head completely and blow it up i thought mm-hmm. was was probably my biggest issue with the whole thing but mm-hmm. that's just my take on it what about y'all
2: yeah i think i think it changes her character a little bit too because i think the function of her character is to be the temptation And it's not about her lust. It's about the test that she's there to facilitate. And I think in the movie, it changes it a little bit because I think that she takes it too far. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think, like, you're right. If they're going to stay true to the poem, then she would be part of the game. Whereas I feel like in the movie, she's a little bit more like, I don't know if she has more agency, which I feel like normally I would say, that's a good thing <laughs> for a female character, but because she doesn't fit into the game, it kind of makes her seem a little bit, even more like devilish, like she's pushing it to like her own agenda. So yeah, it, it does like change in a very pivotal way.
1: I agree with that. I think because there's that point where, you know, she wakes him up or he wakes to find her in his chamber. And he even says, "Yeah, I, I, you know, would have loved to have approached you, but it's not right. It's not right." I think he reiterates it, and then at that point, that's kind of the traditional,
2: right? Like that should be the test poem,
1: Gawain version, right. and then there's tacked on this, you know, for sake of the audience, you know, modernized version of you know what a modern reaction might have been. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but. They they do actually kind of now that I think about it lead it up to right on that point where he says it's not right. That's where the poem ends, and then this is mm-hmm. Lowry's interpretation right there. So, um, but I agree with you. I I think it did, it definitely did change the lady's character quite considerably uh, between mm-hmm. the two.
2: Yeah, normally I would be happy with a little more agency in a female character, but <laughs> considering what? like the function of every single character in the movie and the poem it's just a like quite a bit of a deviation
0: right and i guess seeing it the first time not having read the source material i didn't have a problem with it at all because i had nothing to base the deviation on i didn't even know there was a deviation what i had a problem with at first with that whole sequence is that the momentum comes to an ass grinding halt uh, as soon as he enters the palace. I love Joel Edgerton too. And we've talked about Alicia Vicanda before, but yeah, the first time I was watching it, it does, the movie does slow considerably down It's slow to begin with, but it really goes to a snail's pace during that scene. And I wasn't, I was still absorbing the visuals that I couldn't really focus on the themes and what was going on subtextually. Alicia Vikander's whole speech about the color green and what it represents, that flew over my head the first time and even the second time because I I truly couldn't focus on analysis at that point. But I did pick up on this the sequence that we're all talking about. So the lady drops little hints that she's involved in magic and sorcery like Morgan Le Fay is. And I noticed this the third time that I watched it, but the old lady with the bandage around her eyes touches Gawain's face exactly like his mom does earlier on in the Ooh. film. Exactly the same hand placement. So I pictured that as his mom is communicating to him through that old lady. They're one in the same. So I pictured the lady in cahoots with... Morgan Le Fay so they're all in on the test but the lady is so aware that Gawain is not up to the test of being a noble knight that he wears so much shame that this act of giving him back his protective girdle in addition to doing what she does (laughs) is the most emasculating shameful thing she could do to him to prove to himself that he is failing this Mm. test so when I watched it I was just like whoa that what a badass it didn't make her a villain because kind of like the shame and cowardice is the big villains of this story and that's kind of proving to him at that point that he is not ready to venture into the Mm. chapel
2: that's so so so
0: I, I liked that Edition of it, Uh, it it can be read as a little gratuitous or unnecessary, but I don't know. All three times, it's it's just worked for me, and and you have two of the most attractive people on earth (laughs) doing this, so it's you know gets a little a little hot. Is it hot in here? (laughs) But yeah, and then of course the infamous shot where it cuts to the bodily fluid. You just don't see that, and it is such a tasteful way to show that <laughs> um i david lowry has created a new type of of way of, of di- discussing sexual themes like that so so i loved it but i i, I get your criticisms when comparing it to the um text
2: that's interesting because i i almost feel like now that you've talked about that it's almost like in the poem there's a stop gap, or there's like a threshold that they're expected to uphold And it's like, as soon as they get to that threshold, the test can be done. And it like, it never pushes further. Like all the people are like, well, I I don't know if, I don't know if it's almost like a, not an excuse. Um, But yeah, there's like a threshold. And once the, the threshold has been reached, then they back down. Whereas in your version, which I think is interesting to think about, it's like, no, like you've already failed this many tests like you're clearly not upholding the like we talked about so in the poem Gawain has a shield or like a breastplate with a pentangle so like a star and all five of those points are supposed to represent the social what are they uh virtues virtues things that he's supposed to uphold to be a perfect knight and without one you fail the whole thing so the lady in the movie is not interested in him reaching that threshold. She's more interested in like shoving his face in the fact that like he failed all of these. Like you're not a knight, bottom line. Like I can push you even further because right. you've already failed all these things. So it's, you know, it's not about reaching a threshold. It's about the fact that you've failed and you've fallen so you can't like push forward.
0: Yeah, and the whole movie, even after that point, Gaiman is just, he keeps on giving in to what's safe or he tries to mm. circumnavigate the hardships of the journey and he knows that he's going to be wearing that girdle when he approaches the green knight. So, yeah, since there is that sexual element in there, I don't think that the lady is also his mom. <laughs> That'd be a little weird, but I do think they're in cahoots and that there is that element there that where she's really trying to show him how much he's not uh, up to the task. So, mm-hmm.
1: Another thing I found interesting on Alicia Vikander's monologue about color is I could be mistaken, but when she's questioning, you know, why does the knight wear green or why is he green? She says, I think right after that, why not blue? And she might say blue first, which if she does, then I guess my point is on more solid ground. But if she doesn't, maybe not. But she's wearing like a cobalt blue dress or gown the entire time she's on screen save for the time she's in his chamber with the which is also interesting the fur that she wears looks like a fox coat Mm. i I just i thought that it's very red it might not have all the black and white and red that a fox does but i thought that looks like a fox fur that's pretty interesting but I don't know what I'm trying to say or what point I'm trying to make, but I think that it might be a power reference because we associate green with power based off of the night's physical appearance. But there's also, you know, I think she's hinting at like, you know, why isn't he blue and she's dressed in blue. Like I have to be dealt with too, essentially. Mm. So
2: yeah.
1: I need to iron that thought out a little bit more, but I just uh, wanted to, Make sure I didn't forget to say that.
0: Right. Well, speaking of the Green Knight's appearance, that transitions nicely into the next big change. So in the poem, the Green Knight is just described as a green man. He's He's got green skin. He is green. Not much detail is put into that other than the fact that he is green. Whereas the movie, David Lowry, who also uh, adapted the short story into a screenplay, he edited the film too. But he makes the wise decision to turn the Green Knight into this tree Groot. god person yeah. with wood bark skin. Uh, it, he's like fully wood and plant life
2: based, yeah. based
0: through and through. And when he moves, you just hear the crackling of trees and wind. It's so That's creepy. That's one of my favorite things. The sound design is incredible. His beard is little twigs that it looks like wood carvings that turn into twigs. It's brilliant. Um, and Ralph Anison's voice is incredible. He, if you listen to our episode on Dune that we did with my brother, Tim, I cast Ralph and Eason as the emperor for part two, Dune part two, just based on his stature and his voice alone. What a great actor. He was great in The Witch, Robert Eggers horror film that came mm-hmm. out uh via a24 oh, amazing in that yeah so love love the green knight what'd you think about the green knight uh, in the
1: movie i loved his representation um i thought it was a very clear way to convey to the audience like mankind's grappling with natural elements and force you know right out of the gate uh i just was i didn't I, this wasn't apparent to me upon first glance but only after researching you know did it come to be clear that that's very, very um, intentionally done to pit King Arthur's attempt to control the environment. I mean, he says, you know, I look out this window and I see, you know, everything that your hands have created, uh, essentially, and their their attempt to manipulate, you know, their environment, their attempt to manipulate, uh, manipulate or control nature to a degree. It's not so heavily stated as that, but And then when the night walks, waltzes in, it's like a full confrontation with that idea. And these, these two ideas just kind of clash together and it's, it becomes also just a a metaphor for, I think humanity's existence in this, in this prolonged battle with, with uh, nature and its effect that the effect that humanity's had on, on our environment in general, Um, as well as stating Gawain's. The start of his journey um and the the uh the foe that he will have to deal with so very loaded intentionally there but i i loved the way that he was depicted i thought that i would rather prefer him the green knight depicted that way than in the poem
2: because
1: mm. there's different representations tolkien's representation of him is essentially like a very stately wealthy nobleman that has green skin and is ordained with you know this very elaborate garb very nice things gold steel you know uh but to have the knight depicted this way i I would prefer that i think it's i think it was a great creative slant on on lowry's part
2: yeah i agree i feel like i i'm gonna keep hitting this uh point but just the fact that the point of chivalric romances is to to be metaphorical. I think if you just had a green person, it's not as ethereal. And I just like how, especially like you were talking about with nature and how that's, um, gosh, isn't there like a tree wizard in Lord of the Rings too? It's kind of like, Oh, like like the the big tree people. Yeah. Right. But maybe I'm thinking of a different movie, but there's like a gray wizard who like, like lives in the forest somewhere. Anyway, does it doesn't... Wait, my are you point, thinking
1: of the never-ending story and like the rock creature? The rock god? what <laughs> I'm thinking about. You're hitting on something that's like bringing something up for me and I'm trying to help you out.
2: <laughs> maybe I should have come Meryl more Streep prepared with this idea. Into but, the Woods? <laughs> no, no, it's definitely <laughs> like a, a male character. Anyway, my point is that I really like how metaphorical it pushes this... Idea, Like, especially if if we're going to talk about the clash between nature and technological progression of humanity, then to make him a tree god is much more representative of that, rather than just being like, oh, nature has greenery in it, so let's have green skin on the character. I feel like that's a little too literal, whereas this makes it a lot more symbolic, which I think is just... You can find its roots if you'll excuse the pun <laughs> in in the poem. right. So it's yeah. also really interesting because I like how Mother Nature is normally conjured as, you know, the representative of Earth,
0: right. But very it is, true. it's
2: really interesting that Gawain is being challenged by a masculine character because I think what the the original Gawain poet is is saying is that all of these, Knightly virtues are essentially empty. They're just symbolic. Like there's nothing yeah. underneath. And so for this character to come in and have all of this like very grounded sense of being, like literally grounded in like roots and trees, it's pushing Gawain to look past what he's been asked to like represent as a knight and yeah. actually be a good person.
0: Right. Exactly. And Ryan was talking about this earlier, how Gawain is is confronting nature and the challenge in front of him. And the appearance of the green knight matches the big speech that the lady gives later on, which I didn't, it didn't fully sink in into my third viewing, as I said, and I had to do some research in it. But she was talking about how green is the color of decay, but it's also representing life and time and what springs out of death and grows over it so life will go on nature will go on after Gawain's death basically saying like his life is worth nothing like green's what's left in all its shades and hues so the green knight will be left when Gawain dies so he can living with honor and being a true knight and dying is what lasts. Not yep. just simply living a life and not being decapitated. Like who, who cares when you eventually die, your grave will grow over with grass.
2: That actually, that's one of the coolest scenes. I think when he dies in the forest and we see this strange, like when he turns into a skeleton in the forest and he gets like overgrown by this moss and all the dirt, Right. that is, was shocking to me because obviously that's not in the poem. And I was just like, obviously we knew the movie wasn't over. I don't even know if that's halfway through the movie, right? but I was watching that and I was like, it's so haunting. We haven't even touched on the score yet, but we should talk about the score and how incredible the score is. But that was like, I think that goes exactly to your point that a lot of, what we're talking about is how these chivalric virtues are almost laughable nowadays. I mean, it's, it's almost an absolute chance that we even have this text because it, you know, nobody knows when it was originally put down to paper. No one originally knows when it started to be traded orally as a poem. And I, I think the original text too, like was in a fire. It like could have been completely lost to humanity, if not for complete chance. So that idea of humans being completely forgettable unless, you know, you bring something to the table that's kind of in that like legacy. Yeah. I don't know, echelon. Then you will be forgotten and you'll just kind of like become a skeleton in the middle of the woods. I love that.
1: Well there's there's a big point and I'm glad you hit on that because there's a big point about the interpretation of the word legacy here. And I think mm. that what one of the major lessons provided by the film is the differing differentiating between materialistic legacy, whether that be becoming king and you know ruling over whatever land you're trying to conquer, having an heir to the throne and the legacy of you know who what will people remember you by by the good that you've done and adhering to those knightly virtues as opposed to Trying to, you know, create a legacy by having offspring or heirs Mm -hmm. or extending your reach as far as you possibly can materially while you're alive. And then separating those two and showing how bad one can be and how great the other one can be. And we don't Mm -hmm. really get to see, you know, at the end of the movie, we don't get to see how that might play out. But we are at least left with the decision to go one way or another, which I think is super important, and the one reason why I think that Lowry encapsulated the going character well by adding that point at the very end, as opposed to just letting it be open ended. The fact that he takes off his sash, his you know protective you know sash that's supposed to keep him unharmed, and accepts his fate is the decision is the virtuous decision is the right decision is the good one the truthful one mm-hmm. the honest one and the honorable one he, he kind of hits everything all at once with just making that choice um i think legacy is a big issue in this film um massive mm-hmm. so i mean i i feel like i could talk about that all day and to your point laura the 360 shots in the forest when it you know goes all the way around we come back to the corpse and then it clockwise it goes the other way i think it comes back to him i was confused at first with that but it kind of made sense when he is at the chapel and he's flinching from the blades right and then i think we're provided with hit the scene of him fleeing and then going on and living this life and then it all comes rushing back to that point where he decides to take off his cloak and then accept the blow i think you know we're given flashbacks he he is able to foresee the future consequences of his decisions Mm
2: -hmm. and i
1: don't think it's very clear in the movie at first that that's what we're seeing that's the way i'm interpreting it is you know if i lay here all bound up and give up i'm gonna die and i'm gonna Mm -hmm. become a bag of bones literally Mm -hmm. just sitting here and then it kind of comes back to him and then he decides to act so there's these mm-hmm. moments of like action in the film that are marked with these very ethereal, you know, well, the forest scene was ethereal, but marked by these, these you know, visions I think he has,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or just representing the consequence of, or foresight of the character. So I don't know if y'all felt the same way about that, but that was, that was my take on it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The first time when they do that 360 shot with him on the ground, I didn't notice that In the background, the seasons are changing. That might sound silly, but I I just didn't even notice that the first time. So when it reverses, it goes back. It's perfect setup for later on in the film when he does have that vision of what life would be like when he leaves. And watching that the first time, I remember thinking to myself, because there's a song that plays when he leaves, and then there's a bit of score, and then another bit of score. So there's three song changes. So there's usually no song changes when you do a flashback. So the fact that it kept on going signified to me, oh, this is this is real, mm-hmm. and it keeps on going. There's no dialogue, which is makes it more beautiful. That it's about ten minutes of showing, not telling. After his son dies, and then his kingdom is being there's that siege on the kingdom. I was just thinking to myself, God, I hope, I hope this is not real. I hope. I was just, I, I had my fingers crossed. I, I was just begging that what I was seeing was wasn't true Mm -hmm. and when it finally cuts back to him in the chapel the cathartic (laughs) release is so immense so satisfying i I think it's brilliant and just because it
2: pushes it a little further than i think a lot of movies do right because i had the same moment where i was like this might be what he does right I don't know if they're gonna pull it back again and it was yeah yeah, it was a long time it was a it was a chunk of the film where you're like he ran away like
1: I kept on looking at the uh I kept moving my mouse and seeing how much time I had left because I was like okay seven minutes for credits I'm gonna throw my laptop if this is the way that it ends (laughs) like this is I was like how is he going to tie it all together
2: yeah and
1: it 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 you know, more for me in those moments, I get angry. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> but the cathartic release is all the same. I mean, I I was just so relieved when, when he presented that, you know, the true option at the end. Um, so in full agreement with both of you.
2: Yeah, I, I really like in the very end, since we've kind of come to the end of this movie, unfortunately, how this whole story, this whole adventure is framed by the fact that it's called a Christmas game. And I know that it's obviously deeper than just a game. It is an emotional challenge. Like it's, it is a challenge. However, I really like the playful aspect in the very end of the movie that they kind of put between the night and Gawain, because I think it was really true to how, it, it, I, I think What am I trying to say? I think it gives Gawain an almost noble naivete, or like he's he is he's cowardly, but it's like it it puts it in a very accessible place for people like us, who are just audience, where it was like, yeah, like if you're kneeling in front of someone with a fucking sword, (laughs) like you're gonna (laughs) flinch, you you know? So it's not, (laughs) yeah. yeah, So I just think it gave it like if the the point of the poem might have been to satirize or point out how silly and impossible it would be to hold up these knightly virtues especially i mean women even weren't considered like this story was not written for women it was written to satirize like this masculine possibly the the Gawain poet was a woman who knows if she maybe she was trying to satirize knights in general but for the most part this is a very like masculine story. And I really love that if that was the point of the poem, the movie a little bit puts you, puts everybody into Gawain's place and says like, everybody has emotional challenges that you're going to have to come up against in life. And I think that playfulness in the end of the movie really stays true to the Christmas game aspect of, especially if you just think about, you know, the timing of when this story takes place, people usually are reflecting on how the year went and how they want the next year to go and how you can become better. Like that's the whole idea behind New Year's resolutions. So I kind of like that this is just reminding people that a new year can be a new rebirth for anybody, you know, to yeah. like look at yourself and decide who you want to be in the next year.
0: There's that great line of dialogue when... The Green Knight says, did I act the same way in your position? You've had a year to prepare for this. And Gawain says- had a like,
1: year to gather courage. Yeah.
0: yeah. One year or a hundred wouldn't make a difference. Like you can't, I'm facing my own death here. Like, yeah, yeah, like <laughs> uh, give me a minute. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say the original poem is, I interpreted a slight homoerotic.
2: Oh, absolutely. With the, the
0: kissing, the absolutely. Lord basically begging. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: The and, uh, kiss him. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, they kind of highlighted that I think with the kiss between Dev and, and Joel. I mean, it's not a peck. It's, it's nothing really erotic, but it does. They do shoot a very, you know, central moment between the two and, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's, you know, with his hand on his face and he has to pull his arm down and say, and hand me. So, I mean, it's a, you know, it, it's a it's a statement right there. Yeah. I mean, there's 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 definitely some allusion to what was what was in the poem. And Laura, to your point about it being a Christmas game and, and keeping it lighthearted, I agree full, you know, wholeheartedly. And I think that that is a great point to make. Um, just to note in the poem, you know, he goes back with a scratch. He basically the knight cuts him on his mm-hmm. cheek after he you know reveals, I think, the garment and sends him back kind of like with a you know a spank on the butt being like <laughs> it was all a game but you know you passed in the end but let this be a lesson to you and he goes back with the sash or the garment the i don't i don't know what to call it but in all the knights and the round table kind of make fun of him about it and they're like let this be a lesson to us to remain honest and mm-hmm. then they all adorn a sash as well and so they kind of you know, there's there's a big camaraderie thing there, but to the highlight it being lighthearted at the end of the movie where it's lighthearted at the end of the poem is is a is a great point to make.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important too to note that he did have a year to prepare. And even though most of us will not be put in a position of a death threat by Axe or beheading by in tree our lives, God. by TreeCon, it's important to say like, sure, maybe we won't face that. But if you let an entire year go by without changing and without preparing for something that could come in the future, like that is a lot of time to be able to prepare. And like looking back, it's it's one of those things where like the best day to plant a tree was yesterday or something like that, whatever that Mm -hmm. sort of phrase is, like putting the time in. And I think even like a, a better way of, you know, interpreting the chivalric virtues, which was like, always be perfect. Or else, you know, you're, you're nothing, you're worth nothing. A better way to think about that is like, you know, set your goals really high, set your bar high and spend a lot of time perfecting those goals. And you'll never be perfect. But if you choose every day to be the best that you can be, then by the end of a year, you'll be more prepared to face whatever, right? Right. I remember...
0: There is this therapist on TikTok. Oh God, I outed myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on TikTok. um, That was saying that humans spend so much time focusing on the negative effects of certain actions in the future that you don't weigh the effects of inaction. And like the lady alluded to in her speech, life is not going to wait for you. Life will continue growing on yeah, he he had that year go by where he didn't prep, he did mentally or, or otherwise. So it's kind of a good lesson to not let inaction take over and
1: mold your character. It's a great point. Yeah. One more one more thing, and I want to know your thoughts on this. What did you guys interpret the last line of the movie to be? Off with oh, your head.
0: Ryan. Okay, I'm glad you asked that because that was my next big question. So. I have an interesting journey with my interpretation. So the first time I saw the film, I interpreted the now off with your head, kind of like a jokingly little barb at Gawain, like a father to a son. It's just like, okay, you passed the test, like off with your head. And then he was saying that him doing the finger across his neck, that technically counted as a return blow. So the first time I watched it, I'm like, that's brilliant. Leaving up to your interpretation, but I interpret it as Gaiman survives. And then the second time, I wasn't so sure when I was focusing on the themes and it really started to make sense that David Lowry was saying your honor and legacy is more important than your life. I'm thinking oh, well, then he should die in that case to really drive home the message. So my second time, I wasn't so sure. I'm leaning towards him dying. But then the third time, so each chapter of the film has text before it. Sometimes it's hard to read. And I couldn't I couldn't read the text before Gawain enters the Green Chapel until the third time. I really, I paused it and looked forward on my screen and it reads, a beheading, at the Green Chapel. So David Lowry says a beheading. Now it's still up to your interpretation, but I think slowly over time, I've gone from it being a silly little comment to no, Gawain's dead. That's it. Laura? <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
2: you've convinced me. <laughs> yeah. I but what do you feel
0: it. in your bones?
2: I feel like I like the idea that he's beheaded. That's what I got my first time watching it, because I feel like the point isn't to avoid dying. The point is that he needed to understand the hubris that went into his first blow. And I think that as as tragic as it is for those 7 minutes where we see that he ran away the tragedy is because he didn't learn anything and it's also because i feel like if we don't see him beheaded it's almost like it was just a game like the stakes weren't super super high because he was always sort of um fated to win and i think that's another like sort of meta reading of the poem about how the hero always survives. And I don't, I think he does survive in the poem, but I think to push it a little further in the movie to say that, you know, in our age, the hero doesn't always survive. And sometimes they have to go through a permanent lesson that like you already fucked up. So you don't get that fate of winning or of of surviving that's how I interpreted it the first time. But I did not notice the title card. Right. That you're talking about. But
0: of course it could be a metaphorical but, title card. The yeah. more I think about it, maybe I'm swaying back that he survives because they're I saying think he does. Yeah, because you're they're saying like it, it is a game in the sense that it doesn't end in death. Obviously Gawain was put through absolute hell in order to learn his lesson, but he learned his lesson. Game over.
1: But let's yeah. let's let's okay. break down the sentence and this is the, i'm taking a contrarian stance here the way that he says that sentence he says it kind of with a smirk on his face he's like well done because so so in the vision where he runs away he still has his garment on and mm-hmm. that vision ends with him removing the garment on the throne when he's king with his head falling off right It snaps back, he still has it around his waist, and then he says, Wait, give me a moment, and then he removes the garment, it says, Now I'm ready, and he's steadfast and he's convicted. He's like, Let's go. I'm good now. And then the knight goes, Well done. And now off with your head. And I think that the way he says it, he means run along with your head. Like
2: you can keep it.
1: I think it's a total misdirection there. I think he's, he's alluding to the true ending of the poem, and we're left with the ability to interpret how the rest of his journey is going to fare.
0: That's brilliant.
1: And with when Joel Edgerton says, you know, if you come back through these parts, we won't be here. Because he's the Green Knight in the poem, he's there at the chapel. I mean, there's nothing to say that you know, with witchcraft and magic present in the story, that he can't, right. you know, Materialize somewhere else or go somewhere else quick, quickly, or quicker than Gaw- Gawain can. But I think, I think he, that's his—that's the knight's approval that just the act of removing the sash, because he knows that it's there to protect him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The act of removing that is an admittance to or an acceptance of, of, you know, what the challenge was in, in, in the, in the, in a first sense, I, I I'm, I'm convinced that he's like, all right, cool. Now take, along. Your you. You take your head with you. Take your head with you.
2: Well, I'm convinced and I feel dumb. Yeah. I need to rewatch the movie. Because I feel like I missed.
0: Well, speaking of dual meanings, the Green Knight—the title itself—and the movie, it becomes two because it's referencing the Green Knight, but also Gawain—he's green in the sense that he's new. He becomes the knight. It's perfect.
1: Knight. Yep.
2: Mm. Yeah. Huh?
1: He's a novice. He's
2: yeah. <laughs> I like that a lot.
1: <laughs> no, I think I think that's 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 purposely done. It's not right. Sir Sir Gawain or Gawain and the Green Knight. It's the Green Knight.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, so, but no, you, you've convinced me. Your listeners, you've seen in real time me start at one opinion, go to another, then switch back to my... No, version.
2: I love that because you're totally right. The movie, like we talked about, the movie, he doesn't start out as a knight. Right. in the poem, he does. And that's why it's called Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. But right. I, I think you're right. By cutting that part out, it's a double entendre, but it's also like, it's smart because if he's not starting as a knight, we don't want him to be a sir. Yeah.
0: Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a Christmas movie. It's canon. It's
1: official. Um, and I, I think the other the other my last point is that I think that Gawain in the movie is one of his virtues is that he is truthful because right. people are like, oh, you're a knight. He's like, I'm definitely not a knight.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm not.
1: Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. He He dispels that at every chance that he can. And if I'm wrong, if he does masquerade as a knight in certain instances, then I'll accept that. But it stood out to me that he, at every chance, is very transfixed on achieving that knightlihood status. And he's not going to accept it until he feels like he's earned it. So that's kind of the one redeemable character trait, I think, that bolsters him
2: mm-hmm.
1: on a decent foundation with the audience throughout the film. Whereas mm-hmm. if he was just a total
2: shit sting piece, you
1: know yeah he's <laughs> shit human then you're like okay well you know maybe i do want him to get beheaded at the end of the film but yeah right yeah
2: um, yeah he th- is likable oh, he's, redeemable. Every, he's yeah. totally redeemable absolutely yeah you really do fall in love with him and you start cheering for him almost immediately like you can feel how embarrassed he is that he's not an, and he doesn't feel like he has a place at the table or he's the, earned a place at the right. table and really the only reason he's there at the feast is because he's Arthur's uh, yeah. ne- nephew, nephew. so yep. Nepotism, baby. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's what he's like, yeah. you
0: know, insecure yeah. about. So. Yeah. Well, before we go, gosh, we could talk about this for much longer, but we're
2: going to talk about the score.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just want to talk about the haunting score by Daniel Hart. I hope he gets nominated, but this movie is not slated to get nominated for anything, which is such a shame. Such a shame. I, this is one of those movies that people love that just will not perform at award shows it's it's i i don't know why the industry works like this it's such a
2: piece of art i don't understand how it would not be considered
0: justice for daniel hart also the cinematography beautiful (laughs) Mm -hmm. by andrew draws palermo palermo excuse me (laughs) um yeah this movie looks beautiful too i the cinematography category is kind of stacked this year dune will probably win but mm. I think this movie deserves to be nominated as well it won't be but there it is so just wanted to shout out those two things along with the makeup and product design uh, everything below and above the line
2: is the costumes I, perfect yeah. the, the thing that I absolutely love is the crown that they use oh yeah That's and so that kind of like tilted forward halo
1: halo yeah
2: yeah like well, the halo just crown
1: it, it just is such a blatant, um, lift from medieval art yeah. and representation of, of Christianity and the Christ-like figures, um, angels mm-hmm. as well. I mean, you know, almost, you know, we're very commonly depicted with that very present circular halo behind their head. So that, I thought that was a, uh, really cool thing that they did with the crown too. Yeah.
2: And it's yeah. also super symbolic about how, if he had taken on that crown, he, he like sit, as elf. So eloquently says he sits on a throne of lies right? because yeah. he's been crowned as this like saintly character as Arthur and his wife have been, but obviously like we, we've seen that at his very roots, he ran away from his challenge. So it's like very symbolic of his like cowardice and lies.
1: Now, did y'all watch it all the way to the very end past the credits?
0: Yeah, there's a I did. I only because I heard that there was a, a post-credit scene.
1: No, you yeah. didn't.
2: No. I didn't. It's no. a
1: very short 30-second, maybe 20-second scene. And I think this is hearkening back to our comments on legacy and what is a good legacy. This the the crown is sitting there on the ground, and this little kid, she's like four or five years old, just sitting down next to it, and she just kind of looks at it and Oh, just puts it on and then it cuts. So to me, it's like that crown has become a child's plaything. It doesn't mean anything
2: anymore. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It, it and and it's like choose which path you want to take.
2: I do you want to fight so
1: fight so yeah, hard to I'll create to this you. to create this kingdom and this legacy and then for it to just be destroyed in a minute and then for that to not even be connected to a human. To whoever wore it and to just be this inanimate object that becomes a toy. Yeah. I'm lucky that I had it up and running to see that because I thought that was pretty powerful.
2: Oh, I didn't know that that was there. You failed me. You didn't tell me that there was something after. I didn't know (laughs) know until the third time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time, especially around. Christmas. I know it gets pretty busy for everyone, so we really appreciate you coming back for the fourth
1: time. <laughs> well, it was wonderful to be a part of this Christmas game with yeah. with, <laughs> with with you two. So uh, thank you as always for for having me and asking me to join. It's an honor every single time, and I've really enjoyed collaborating with you on on these uh, podcasts as well as as the other two that we did. So you know, hopefully more to come in the future.
2: Absolutely, yes.
1: the honor is all ours sir. And I, I, want hope- I want some, I want <laughs> some, I need, I need, I need to have the honor be mine as well.
2: Yeah. All right. A little and, bit.
0: And hopefully it's not uh one year hence before we do another episode. <laughs> All right, listeners. Well, please rate and review, subscribe, follow okay. is now the term. Uh, please follow me on letterboxd at Danny G reviews and yeah, we'll see you on, <laughs> on the next one. Happy holidays. And I'll see you on the next one.